Good morning, welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today, our weekly study of the Parsha, trying to extract contemporary lessons, ideas for the Parsha to be the filter through which we examine and explore the world in which we live today. I want to thank our generous sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, dear friends and family, in memory of David Grossman, Becky's father, Le'ilu Nishmas, David Ben, Menachem Manish, thank you so much for your generosity and sponsorship. This morning, Shir is also sponsored in this chus of Shoshana Le'abas Aliza to find her shidduch speedily, please God. She'll be dancing at her wedding, Bikarov, in the near future. If you'd like to sponsor a future Shir, please go on brsonline.org slash sponsor, brsonline.org slash sponsor. Also, Every week, our Parsha Perspective, somebody puts together beautiful notes, slides, which if you subscribe to our newsletter, you will get both the shear and the slides. You can print them out, take them to your Shabbos table, and the Divrei Torah you're about to hear, you can be reminded of clear notes, which will help you be able to communicate and share with others. You can sign up for the newsletter at rabbiephraimgoldberg.org. We are privileged this morning to learn Parsha's Kiseitze, page 1046 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, we continue with a the Mishnah Torah, a repetition of many of the laws that we saw and we've learned earlier in the words of Moshe Rabbeinu on his last day of his life as he's giving a charge to the Jewish people. When you go out to war with your enemy, and you will, God will deliver in your hand and you will take captives. You'll be successful and triumphant and you'll collect the spoils which will include people. You're going to capture a beautiful woman. Among the captivity will be a woman who's beautiful. You'll desire her. You'll long for her and you'll take her for you as a wife. And you bring her into your home. You shave her head and you allow her nails to grow and you remove the garment of her captivity. She sits in your house. She cries for her parents. These are what are known as the laws of Yifas Torah. We've discussed it, as have many in the past at length. A concession to the frailty, to the reality of who we are. Lo dibra Torah The Torah speaks to the reality of who we are, not who it wishes we were. Torah is not a utopian document. It doesn't describe a utopian world. It speaks to the reality of the world in which we live, which makes it unusual as a religious document in that sense. So we begin with an insight of Rav Druk and his Eish Tamid. And he wonders about this Pasuk. He says, Why does it say, when you go out? What relevance is it? The whole law of Yifas Torah is telling us a law of when you are at war. So why not just begin and tell us when you're fighting, when you're battling, when you confront your enemy. When you fight, when you confront your enemy. Why do we have to begin when you go out? Moreover, he continues, why does it say as if this is an enemy who's well known that you know this enemy. It should have said when you go out to any war against any enemy. This sounds like a definitive enemy. First of all, why not just begin when you're fighting? Why does it say your enemy, some specific distinct enemy? Just say whatever enemy it might be. Thirdly, the third question. Why does it say, When Hashem delivers into your hand and you take captive, what does one thing have to do with the other? It could have said, When you go out, and you take a captive, and it turns out she's beautiful. Why is the tenai, why is the condition, when you take that captive, first, it has to be, Places in your hand. And lastly, underneath the word, underneath the lamid of la milchama, when you go out, 
to the war. It is a well-known war. It is a specific war. It is a predictable war. It is an anticipated war. What war are we talking about? What war is the parsha is the Torah describing? So Rav Druk describes, as so many have, we can recall this in countless names, clearly it's something true. In fact, some say, in today's day and age, when we don't have these laws applying in the specific way in which they're communicated, then the drush, that second additional layer, becomes almost the pshat, the primary level layer. Viner loma bechozes. So what you can say when it comes to all this, Yisodat varam. It says besvarim akedoshim that the Torah is not talking about simply a war with a physical material enemy. Torah is talking about the war. And what is the war that we all face? Nechemes hayetzer. We all confront the Gashmi. This is not a physical war that we're going to fight with a physical enemy. Torah is hinting to a specific war. We each have a war. You know what the war is? The war of the Trader Joe's corn chips or the Cape Cod potato chips. The war is not continuing to eat even when we're full. The war is getting enough sleep the war is not being sedentary, but getting up and moving and being active and getting exercise. The war is making it to minyan on time and paying attention when we make brachos and having kavana when we daven. The war is holding back when we have some juicy gossip or slander we're desperate to share. The war is the battle between our godly spirit and our animal impulse. The war is the battle to be our best selves when there is so much temptation and desire and distraction, when there is so much noise trying to set us and knock us off course. And now we can answer each of these questions. Why does it say, Ki seitzei? The answer is, we are here to fight this battle. It's not if you go to war, it's when you go out. You know when the war begins? When the alarm clock goes off. Even before your feet hit the ground in the morning, there is a battle, there is a struggle, there is a war. Will I snooze? How many times will I snooze? Will I make excuses to show up late or to come all together to skip minion? What will be, even before the alarm goes off, we are in a battle. So not if you go to war, but when we go to war, when the neshama comes down to this world and is housed in the body, and the soul and the body have different interests, competing interests, they're not always aligned. So there is a battle. The animal instinct inside us says, follow my impulse, follow my drive, follow my desire, do what you want to do. And the godly soul, the godly spirit says, no, you're in control. No, you've got it together. You don't have to give in. That is a battle. Kiseitse, when you go out, meaning when you come to life, you will be in a battle. And now we can understand, This is a battle that goes with us throughout our length of days, throughout our life. And that's what it means, Oyvecha. Torah speaking of every person. This is such a critically important point. Says Rav Druk, Al Oyvecha, doesn't say Al Ha'oyev, when you go to battle, Ki Lachem, when you fight a war with the enemy. What does it say? With your enemy. Because my enemy is different than your enemy. My temptation, my distraction, my kryptonite, what I have to fight to overcome. Each of us come from a different background. Each of us have different personalities. Each of us have different strengths and different weaknesses. And therefore, each of us are facing different battles. Each of us has our own battle that others likely know nothing about. It's in our head, it's in our lives, it's in our daily struggle. Some are visible, some we can team up, some we are collective fights that we share universally. 
but many are very, very personal battles, battles that others don't know in our marriage, with our children, with our physical well-being. We are battling with our spiritual, with our mental health, with our sense of self-confidence. People have no idea. So it says, Oyvecha, your enemy, not simply generically, Al Oyev, the enemy. And moreover, the Torah adds, what is the nature of this battle? Can you finish it? Can you fight the enemy and conclude the war? Does it ever end? Says Rav Juk, no. You shouldn't feel, even after, when God puts the enemy in your hand, when you feel triumphant and victorious, when you think you've won, you need to know, This is an ongoing battle. Do you know how long this battle will last? Maybe different battles, but do you know how long the war will go? From the moment you're born till the day you die. As long as we are here on this earth, as long as we are blessed to be alive, we are battling. The battle may change. The battlefield may change. What goes into conquered territory and what remains on the battlefield may change. However, it is an ongoing battle, an absolute ongoing battle. Because to be alive is to be battling, is to be struggling, is to be confronting. Maybe we form better habits. Maybe we make better choices. Maybe we have better patterns in our life, but we're always battling, always battling. And not only are we always battling, and that's why it says, even after Biadecha, you won this battle, but there'll be another one. The war continues. I remember once dealing with someone, and I learned something from a therapist, a therapist who was treating the person, and I was simply consulting, playing a complimentary role, and I learned something from the therapist. This individual had, had repeated a previous mistake they've made, previous poor behavior, poor decision-making, sabotage not only his own success, but potentially his whole marriage. And he thought that he had conquered the issue when he had confronted it many years before. And the therapist said, you need to understand that this is a battle that you will never win, ever. This is ongoing. You will never conquer, you're always going to have to treat. And the moment that you think you've moved it into conquered territory, you're in trouble because it will rear its ugly head again. We have to know that it's ongoing. Never conquered, never complete, but it's a battle that needs to be managed, never won. It's managed, but it's never fully won. Number two says Rav Juk, Ofen Nosav Nir Yashiv. You can answer differently. Ki And what does it mean? Medubar Memechemes HaYetzer. Ein Lahamten HaShiyavu HaYetzer. Don't wait for the Yetzirah to come to you. Take the initiative. Declare the war. Go out and battle it for, first on its territory before it comes in and tries to conquer yours. And that's why it says, Ki Don't wait for it to come here. Ki la milchama. When you go out to war, don't be in a defensive posture. Don't be having to repair the damage that's already been done. But Ki Identify. Where are the pitfalls? What are the problems? How will I go out? How will I conquer? In fact, the Elul series for BRS this year, we have these four areas of life. How we eat, getting enough sleep, are we breathing, and, and movement, and exercise, not just being sedentary, not just being still. For the next four Tuesday nights, uh, Rabbi Maskowitz, uh, many of the rabbis at BRS and I are giving these classes on these four different areas, and you can sign up for a WhatsApp group to be challenged and to grow, to get chizuk each day of Elul in these 40 days, less than 40 days now as we're counting down to Rosh Hashanah, to grow in these four areas. Kiseitse, we are going out. Don't wait for the battle to come to you. Go, take initiative, and go identify. What do I need to improve? Fight it and battle it and try to make it, try to make it better. Okay, Torah moving along. What happens? A person is going to have two wives. One they love, one they hate. You're going to have children. What's the law of the Ben Abachor? 
The Torah believes in a hierarchy, a birth order, and the responsibility that comes with it. That's why we, the Jewish people ourselves, are considered B'ni B'chori Yisrael. That on the one hand, we're described, we are God's children, but on the other, we're not His only children. All of humanity are God's children, but among the children, we are the eldest B'ni B'chori Yisrael, we are the B'chor, we are the oldest child. What is the significance? What is the role? What is the responsibility of that oldest child? The oldest child takes the place of the parent. The oldest child bears the responsibility to care for the siblings, to protect them, to teach them, to inspire them. And therefore, the oldest sibling needs to be prepared, empowered with the resources and able to be able to do so. There's a beautiful Balaturim. Balaturim in a very uh, cute, if you're allowed to call a Balaturim, cute. Baal of Yaakov ben Asher says, where do you see this hinted to in the Pasuk? This is the halacha. Last year we gave a series of shiurim, four or five or six parts, about the halacha of wills. Not ethical wills, and not, last, uh, not the uh, living will, but wills. How do we bequeath our property, our assets, our estate to our children? And how do we either employ or legally circumvent these rules that the oldest son gets a double portion? Which... The poskim say today, and you can go back and listen and see those source sheets, the poskim today say we do not follow. If you give the oldest child, the oldest son, not a child, it's the oldest son, a double portion, you will alienate and create great resentment and strife among the children. It's a bad idea. So how do you get out of it? How do we get out of giving the oldest son a double portion? How do we get out of only bequeathing to the sons and not to the daughters? There are halachas that speak to it all. But where do you see in the pasuk? Where do you see in the word Bechor itself? In allusions to the Balaturim, if Yaakov ben Asher says... The Bechor, the eldest, gets a double portion. Because he gets a double portion, the whole word Bechor, the whole word that means the eldest, is all double. Bez, Kfula Aleph. The letter Bez is double, two is double the one, the Aleph. The Chaf, Kfula Yud, Shilafaneha. The letter Chaf is 20, is double the 10 that comes before it. And Resh is Kfula Ala Kuf, Shilafaneha. The Resh, 200, is double the kuf, the 100 that comes before it. So it says the Balaturim, a very cute comment, that the word bechor itself includes an allusion, a reference to the idea that the eldest child gets a double portion. Bez is double aleph, chaf is double yud, and resh is double kuf. The bechor gets a double portion so that they are empowered to be able to help the other, to be able to help their siblings and to uh, protect them. Okay, moving right along. Here, Kisete is filled with a litany of laws a repetition of all we've seen before, but a beautiful repetition of these laws. We've seen again this at length as well. What happens when a rebellious, a wayward child is born, who is unwilling to listen, rejects all the messages of the father the mother. They discipline him, but he doesn't listen. He does not change. He's not conditioned by the discipline. So the father and mother grab him, take him out to the elders, and they say, This child, he's rebellious. He won't listen to our voice. He's zolel, a glutton, and a drunkard. We'll mention this when we do my section, I think it's next Tuesday night, on how to eat properly. You see that part of what brings down the Ben Sora Remora, this rebellious child who has no future, the rebellious child who has to be eliminated from the Jewish people is zolel v'sove, gluttonous, has no boundaries in eating and drinking, has no uh, borders, just indulges in every appetite, in every appetite. 
of food and of drink. And all the men throw stones at him and kill him and you remove this evil from your city. And there's so many questions. We've studied this in the past as well. The Ben Sora Umora. Our rabbis teach us the criteria to be able to qualify. This never existed. There never was, there never will be a Ben Sora Umora. Why is it included in the Torah? In order for us to study and to teach and to promote Torah values. So what are those Torah values? What lessons can we extract about parenting and about Jewish education? He never existed, the Ben Sora Umora, but what can we learn? I shared before, one of my good friend's father once told me he was a Jewish educator and left Jewish education. Maybe that inspired this insight or this Dvar Torah. But he said, read the Pasuk differently. This is just a joke. This is not obviously meant to be taken seriously. But read it, Ki yeli ish ben sorer. If you have a child who's rebellious, But the teacher doesn't listen. The teacher is not obedient. The teacher doesn't follow. What do you do? You grab the teacher and you say, Our child is rebellious, but The teacher, the administrator, the principal, that is cool, they won't listen. The teacher, it's all the teacher's fault. You take the teacher out and you stone him. Once upon a time, parent-teacher conference night, the children would sit there. The children were nervous what the parents were going to hear. Now parent-teacher night, the teachers sit there. It's the teachers who are nervous. The parents are going to come take the children's side and beat them up. It's a mistake. If we want our children to do well, partner and respect and listen and embrace. It doesn't mean every teacher is perfect, but it means the teachers are our partners. So don't read it, B'nai Nuzeh Sorer, Umoreh but realize it's the B'nai Nuzeh Sorer Umoreh. That is what goes together. So Chazal teach, our rabbis teach, that the criteria to qualify for this label, what do you earn being a Ben Sorer Umoreh, is, um, is a, the Psukkim delineate who it is. And we have this impression that this child is evil, that this child is wicked, this child is malevolent. But that's not how it started. The story of the Ben Sora Omora, the story of this rebellious child began not with rebellion, but with boredom, with indifference. Rashi tells us that the word Sorer comes from the word Sar. He started out by drifting from the path. No one was engaging him or her. He or her, their, their mind was wandering. They weren't allowed or invited to ask their questions. They were being shut down and stifled. So they were bored. They were bored. They weren't being defiant or seditious as much as they were being uninspired and apathetic. And when they checked out, and when no one noticed they checked out, is how it all began. They were so rare. They were sour. They were drifting from the path. They were disappearing. They were pulling back. And when no one responded, and when no one noticed, when no one engaged, they didn't just become so rare. They didn't just sour. They didn't just drift. They also became more rebellious, and they became defiant. They refuse to listen. The parents are speaking, but they're not listening. Rav Gifter Zatzal points out, the Pasuk doesn't say, It doesn't say, the parents don't come and proclaim, he or she are not listening to our words. It says, To what? Our voice. Now, for the Ben Soro Omora, the parents are just jumbled sounds. They're not articulate words. They're not compelling. They're not persuasive. They're not changing. All they hear is blah, 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 blah. They say, wake up for Davani, and he hears blah, blah, blah. But it's even worse. The Rechaim HaKadosh on our Pasuk says, Einenu Shomea Bekol. It doesn't say, Eino Shomea. He doesn't hear. It says, Einenu Shomea. Says the Rechaim, what's the difference between Einenu and Eino? Einenu means he can't. There's a blockage. There's a barrier. It's not that he chooses not to listen. It's that he can't listen. The message is prevented from penetrating. 
Why? What's causing that breakdown? This child who started with boredom and apathy and then moved to rebelliousness because the parent's voice is not penetrating. Why? Why isn't it penetrating? So the Torah says that in you can't hear the voice of the father and the voice of the mother. The Torah never wastes a word and yet it says kol aviv and kol imo. Why doesn't it just say kol aviv v'imo? can shorten, it can contract, it can be more concise. So some suggest the answer is because there's a second kol. It's not redundant or extraneous. There's a separate kol. The father and the mother are not on the same page. There's a mixed message being said. There's what they say and what they do, and they're each saying separate things. And when there's a mixed message, when different messages are being sent, then the child's unable to hear. We have to have a unified and a united message, a compelling message, a message that we are living and behaving, a message that we are carrying with our actions as much with our words. If we want our child not to be sour, not to grow bored or apathetic, not to drift from the derech, but to stay on. A lot more to say. You can listen to past years when we talked more insights into the Ben Sorer Umora. But continuing. Perech of Beis, Pasuk Dalad. Perech of Beis, Pasuk Dalad. Torah tells us, Lo sir es chamor achicha usharon oflim baderach, vehisalamta mehem, hakem takim imo. You cannot see the donker of your brother, your ox falling on the road and hide. You can't see that there's someone with a flat tire. You can't see that someone who's struggling or stumbling, whose car ran out of gas or battery broke down. You cannot see somebody who needs to be jump-started and you're going to keep walking. You're not going to help. You're not going to intervene or interfere or help. You cannot v'hisalam temehem. Don't close your eyes. Don't look away. Don't bury your face. Hakem takim imo. Stand up with them. Help them up. Help them. Hakem takim imo. So they were falling. Chamor achicha, osharo arnoflim. They were falling. You have an obligation to help them. But how do you have to help them? How do you have to help them? So look at Rashi. Rashi says, Hakim takim zutiina, lahatin This means loading, loading what had fallen off the donkey. Imo imbaalav. You have to help the person recover with their own help, with their own initiative. So what happens? What happens? Somebody's donkey is collapsing under the weight, under the load. Somebody's donkey is collapsing and um, you come over to help them. And you say, I'm here. Let me help you. And they say, oh, but you have a mitzvah. You have a mitzvah to lift up my donkey. Now you do the mitzvah. I'm going to get a shawarma. You do the mitzvah. I'm going to have a cup of coffee on the side of the road and watch you do all the work. Says Rashi, the word is emo. You have to help with him. If he doesn't want to help himself, you are not obligated to help him. This is a comment not only on the specific halacha of hakem takim imo, of your obligation to help him. Maybe one can extrapolate public policy, public health policy. Do you have to help the people not helping themselves? Do others have to inconvenience themselves or make themselves uncomfortable or go to extreme measures when the people who could be taking advantage of miraculous ways for we can help ourselves are refusing to? What is the halacha? Do we have to protect people who refuse to protect themselves? Or if somebody's not emo, they're not doing what they need to do to protect themselves, then maybe we're not obligated to protect them. Perhaps from our Pasuk and this Rashi, one can extrapolate, extrapolate public policy. Rav Moshe Salavechik Zatzal, Rav Moshe Salavechik said, you see from here a very powerful lesson. Hakem Tikimimo means not only the law of somebody who has a broken down car, the law of somebody who's collapsing, who if they're not trying to help themselves, the Kliyakar says on this Pasuk, by the way, the Kliyakar says, you see this when it comes to the laws of Tztaka, somebody who doesn't try to get a job, somebody who doesn't try to support themselves, they're going to go knock on door to door and they're going to collect Tztaka and they're going to say, look, I'm no flim baderach, I'm falling, I'm collapsing, I need you Hakem Takimimo, I need you to help lift me up, write the check. 
pay my bill, take care of my family. Now, says the Kliyakar, you see the word is emo. It's only the person who's trying to help themselves. We help someone who's helping themselves. We inconvenience ourselves. We sacrifice our own resources. We invest in someone who's helping themselves. But if they refuse to help themselves and they put it all on, not someone who's incapable, somebody who is debilitated, somebody who's incapable from helping themselves because of uh, circumstances that are not their fault, of course we have to help them. But somebody who's able to help themselves and chooses not to, they're not looking for a job, they're not earning their wage, they're not doing what they can, they simply want to live off of others, says the Kliyakar, such an individual, you are exempt. Pasuk says, emo, we're only obligated or responsible with them, emo. So says Rav Moshe Salavechik, what do you see from here? The same is true when it comes to the Ribbon Shalom. We want Hashem to help us it's that time of year. It's Elo. We're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. Hashem, sign, inscribe, seal me for a year of good health and parnasa. Give me nachas for my children. Give me shalom bias, peace in my home. God, Allah, brachas. I want all the blessings. So God says, I'll help you, emo, if you're helping yourself. And that's that Moshe Soloveitchik is the, is the pshat. That's how we can understand the Pasuk. We've begun saying, Perech of Zion of Tehillim. We've begun saying, Capital 27, David HaMelech. In Ladavar Hashem Orivishi, and we say We have a double language. One thing I ask from God, that one thing I want. So what does it mean? I want one thing, that one thing I want, I ask for. It's redundant. It sounds like we're simply repeating ourselves. I'm asking for one thing. the one thing avakesh, the one thing is what I'm asking. So how do you understand that? So the answer is that. Whatever Mida, HaKadosh Baruch Hu acts with us, we are Mavakesh of Hashem Izbarach to give us Siyat HaDashmaya on everything. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu will not help us if we don't help ourselves. If we don't help ourselves. Hakim Takim Imo. So that's the Pshat, said Moshe Salavechik. Acha Sha'alti Me'es Hashem. I have one question. And one question is, Shifti Be'es Hashem Ko'i Me'chayai. I want to sit in Hashem's house all the days of my life. But when will Hashem help me? If Oso Avakesh if that's what I'm working on, if that's what I'm trying, if that's the effort I'm making. So I can't not work on my inspiration and then say, Hashem, wave your magic wand and have me wake up tomorrow inspired. What am I doing to inspire myself? Hashem will help contribute to my inspiration if I take those first steps to inspire myself. So, and I will show that I'm doing it because avakesh doesn't just mean it's what I'm asking for. Avakesh means my behavior, my choices, my lifestyle reflect that I'm a mavakesh. I'm searching, I'm yearning, I'm working towards living that life. So hakeim takeim imo. Just like our parsha has halacha, when a person is collapsing, when their donkey or their car are breaking down, we have to help them jumpstart, revive, get on the road again. But only imo, only if they're trying to help themselves, said Rav Moshe Soloveitchik. The same halacha applies spiritually this time of year. Hashem will help us. He will lift us. He will jumpstart us when we look like we're broken down on the side of the road. But only if we help ourselves. Osa avakesh. Are you going to that extra shear? Are you coming a little early to davening? Are you reading things that will challenge you and inspire you? Are you doing what you need to do in order to kickstart, to fan that flame, that pilot light, to become inspired? If osa avakesh, if we're making our effort and doing our part, if we're taking our step, then then we can ask Hashem to help us as well. Perach of Gimel, Pasuk Gimel, continuing along the way. Many, many laws, we've gone through some of them in the fast. Maka ki sivne chadash, when you build a new home and you have to make a maka, a fence on your, on your roof, which applies not only to your roof, a railing, 
It applies uh, on your balcony. It applies not to have anything dangerous in your home. Why does it say that you have to do this with a bias chadash, with a new house? The halacha is you're obligated, even if it's a 50-year-old home that you purchase, and the proper railing and the proper roof fence are not up, then you have to put them up now. So why is it formulated in that way? You could listen to previous year's shiurim. We spoke about ma'ake specifically. Kalayim, you're not allowed to mix things. What is the significance of keeping species separate, not trying to compete with God by creating a hybrid? We have to stay in our lane and know the boundaries. This applies not only to kilayim, to mixing the seeds of the field, but also b'shor b'chamor yachtav. You can't mix an ox and a donkey. Losil b'shatnez. You can't mix two different materials, combining fibers, wool, and linen together. Um, with the exception, of course, tzitzis, asadoch say, not for now. So many, so many laws, adultery of defaming a married woman, the laws goes on and on. Perach of Gimel, Pasuk Gimel, we're moving to. Torah tells us a very difficult set of laws. Individuals whom we're not allowed to marry, we're not allowed to bring them or integrate them into the community. And these individuals, it's very, very difficult. Lo you can't build a person with certain physical deficiencies. And this is the one that perhaps is the most difficult, the most painful. Torah tells us a mamzer. Who is a mamzer? I don't mean that, you know, the brother-in-law that you don't like or the, uh, or the, the shul uh, leader that you don't like or the person you did business with who you defame by calling a mamzer. Mamzer is the word that we use. The most, the greatest insult that we could have is tachas v'shalom, call somebody a mamzer. So of course that's not what a mamzer means technically or halachically. A mamzer is the result of arayas, a forbidden relationship. A mamzer is not that a woman and a man were not married. If they didn't have proper chup of a kedushin, they don't produce a mamzer. Born out of wedlock is not a mamzer. A mamzer is the result of one of the arayas. So a man with a married woman would create mamzerus. That's why if a couple get married with a proper halachic marriage, but they do not get a get, they do not get a kosher get to sever their marriage, and then the woman remarries, thinks that she's remarrying, but really that's eshes ish. She remains a married woman. That's why there's some people who say, better not to do halachic weddings for non-observant. If you're not confident that if the marriage would dissolve, they would get a get, you're doing a disservice. You are potentially setting up and creating mamzerus. Because if you do a proper chuppah v'kedushin and you're not confident that if they don't keep their marriage, they'll get a get and she will remarry, a child born of that second union would be a mamzer. And a mamzer, lo yavo bakal. Nebuch a mamzer can marry another mamzer, a mamzeres, but they cannot marry, they cannot marry someone who's not a mamzer. Tragic. It is the classic tragic. Why punish a child for something their parents did? child that's born from that prohibited union did nothing wrong. They made no poor choice. So why do they live with that label of being a mamzer? Why are they precluded from marrying into the people? It's a tragic, tragic circumstance. So Salavechik and the Rav Salavechik Chumash tackles this question. He writes, contemporary rabbis are confronted with horrible problems. Social, political, cultural, economic, problems of the family, of community, of society in general. Consider the problem of mamzerim. The plight of the mamzer is very tragic, a tragedy that the Mishnah, the Medrash itself points out in Kohelas Rabbah, Perak Dalad. Yet it remains a religious reality. No one can change this reality. Neither I, nor the chief rabbi of Israel, nor the great rabbis outside of Israel. Halacha has its own orbit, its own pattern of responding to a challenge, its own criteria and principles. My grandfather, Reb Chaim Salavechik, used to try his best to rule leniently in such cases. But there were limits. When you reach that limit, all you can say is... I surrender to the will of the Almighty. We cannot allow a married woman, no matter how tragic the case, to remarry without a get. 
Talmud Torah constitutes an act of surrender, of Kabbalah's Omachu Shemayim, of accepting the yoke of mitzvos. The word yoke suggests that Kabbalah's Omachu Shemayim can sometimes be very uncomfortable. It requires sacrificial action of man. But although it is a heavy yoke, the Kabbalah must still take place. This was a speech that the Rav gave in 1975 to the RCA Convention. Study of the Torah is an ecstatic, metaphysical performance. The study of Torah is an act of surrender. That is why Chazal stressed the importance of humility. Humility is necessary because the study of Torah means meeting the Almighty. And if a finite being meets the infinite, the Almighty, the maker of the world, of course this meeting must precipitate a mood of humility. And humility results in surrender. What do we surrender to the Almighty? We surrender two things. First, we surrender the everyday logic, or what we call mercantile logic, the logic of the businessman or the utilitarian person, and we embrace another logic, the logic of Sinai. Second, we surrender the everyday will, which is very utilitarian and superficial, and we embrace another will, the will of Sinai. What does Kabbalah Shalai require of the person who studies Torah? We have to pursue the truth. The truth in Talmud Torah can only be achieved through singular halachic thinking and understanding. The truth is attained from within, in accord with the methodology given by Moshe and passed on from generation to generation. It is ridiculous, said the Rav, to say, I have discovered and approached the interpretation of Torah which is completely new, of which the Rashba didn't know, the Ketzos didn't know, the Vilna Gon had no knowledge. One must join the ranks of the Chachmei HaMesora, Chazal Rishonim Gedolei Achronim, and not try to rationalize from without. Such an attempt, be it historicism, be it psychologicism, psychologicism, I don't know that word, be it utilitarianism, undermines the very foundations of Torah and our tradition, leading eventually to assimilation and nihilism, no matter how worthy the original intention. We must not feel inferior, yielding to the charm of modern political and ideological trends. Not only may we not compromise, we not even yield emotionally to feel inferior. There's no need for an apology. We should have pride in our Masora. One must not try to gear the halachic norm the transient ways of an erotic society. The Rav is saying here that the real religion is not the kumzitz, the kumbaya, that great moment when everything makes sense when we feel on a religious high. The real test of religious man is our willingness to submit and surrender. When things are beyond our comprehension, when we can't understand, when we can't make sense of it, when it's uncomfortable and painful and difficult, and yet, are we obedient to His will or do we force our will? Our willingness to surrender is the testament to our really being committed to Him and committed to his religion, to the Ribbon Shalom, to the Torah HaKadoshah. And perhaps nowhere does that come more to force than the laws of Mamzerus. We don't understand them, and they don't make sense to us, and they seem unfairly punitive, and yet, we must abide by them. We must abide by them. I fight personally, and unfortunately have, have been beaten up because of it in certain circles, and you and we fight on behalf of Agunas, but we cannot make up new halachas to let them feel that they can remarry, we would call mamzeira, cause mamzeiras. We have to get them a get. And we have to stop at no end to be able to rally to get them their get within the halachic process and within what we can do. But if we don't do it that way and we think we're going to introduce some new method, then not only will they not be truly free, Khalilo, we could create a situation of mamzeiras. The next individual or group of individuals who are not allowed or welcome to integrate, to marry into the Jewish people, to join the Jewish community, you're not allowed to welcome an Ammonite or a Moavite. Why? Even in the 10th generation, they shall not enter for all eternity. Of course, we've lost track of these nations. We no longer know who they are. We no longer, therefore, preclude them. But they're not allowed to join. Why are they not allowed to join? Why are they not allowed to join? So Rashi tells us, Lo yavo, uh, bum, 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 bum. 
Not Rashi. Yeah, Rashi. Lo yavo amoni, lo yisa Yisraelis, is not allowed to marry. Why not? So the Eish Tamid, we're back to Rav Druk. And Rav Druk says the following. Says Rav Druk the following. Pasuk zed nitnu beis tamid madu lo yavo amoni. I'm sorry, if you keep reading, that's what I was... The Torah tells you if you keep reading. Advar Hashem lo kidmu eschem balechem mayim mederek b'tzeschem mitzrayim. All you have to do is keep reading the psukim, because when we were traveling, when we were leaving Egypt, and we needed some rest and respite and we had provisions, and we asked them, they said no. They didn't greet us with bread and water on the road when we were leaving Egypt. And be at number one and number two. Asher sachar alecha as bilam ben baor miftor araim nalikalalecha. They hired someone to curse us out. They hired an assassin to spiritually try to assassinate us. It didn't work, but that was nevertheless their nefarious plan. And for those two reasons, because they did not welcome us, they did not practice graciousness with us, and they hired someone to destroy us, therefore you shall not show them mercy. We cannot absorb the cruel character into our people. DNA, their DNA carries cruelty even 10 generations later. Such behavior is cruel. We cannot carry it, we cannot absorb it into our people. The question is well known. You do The order is out of order. When they hired Bilam to curse us, which is the more heinous, which is the more egregious of their violations? Much worse, they tried to hire someone to destroy and obliterate, obliterate us, to extinguish us altogether. Oh yeah, also when we were hungry, they didn't offer us anything to eat. When we were thirsty, they didn't offer us anything to drink. But what is more egregious? What is more cruel? The fact that they hired someone to destroy us. So why does the Torah list it in the other order? That is the question of Rav Druk. If you want to say Ammon and Moab can't marry into the Jewish people because they have cruelty in their DNA, which is the greater reflection of the intensity of the cruelty? Clearly that they hired someone to destroy us. Also, they didn't offer us something to eat or drink. But why does it first lift, list when we were leaving Egypt? They didn't offer that seems to be secondary, not Primary. So says Rav Druk near Levar Bezofanim. You can answer in two different ways. Number one, you can ask, how did they get to that point? How did they descend to that place where they were willing to hire a spiritual assassin, where they hired Bilam to curse us out and to destroy us? How did that happen? How did they come to that place? Ain Russia Kazen notes are both in pit omi. Such rishus, such cruelty, such evil doesn't happen spontaneously. It happens gradually. So you know it happens, it begins with a lesser cruelty. When you see people hungry and you see people thirsty and you not only close your eyes, but you ignore their pleas, when you choose to be cruel to them, you've planted the seed that ultimately will result in your ability to hire someone to destroy. So at first it was a passive cruelty. Your unwillingness to provide provisions was a passive cruelty. But when you can practice passive cruelty, eventually you will practice active cruelty. And that is exactly what happened here and suggests Rav Druk. That's why that is the order of the Psukim. First, they were insensitive and unresponsive to the pleas of the Jews on their way out of Egypt for provisions. And that passive cruelty ultimately manifests itself in an act of cruelty. Number one. Number two, Amon and Moab, lo nidbu ustama kach shlo kidmas am Yisrael belechem v'mayim. Sharu mosa olom yitachin shlo yin v'ayma kach b'tzir kochamura. Aval Amon and Moab halo mibnei lodhein. Maybe nobody was sharing provisions with us. They were not outliers. They were practicing the norm. But why should they have been different? Because after all, where do Amon and Moab come from? 
Amon and Moab descend from Lot. And Lot descends from Avram Avinu. Lot's his nephew. And Lot was saved by Avram Avinu. So really, Lot and his descendants owed the Jewish people for their very existence. Their very existence is only because of what they owe Avram. So if there was any nation, if there was any people who should have been the first to come out and to offer and to be gracious and hospitable, it should have been Amon and Moab. So the fact that they were ungrateful, they should have been the first, they should have been so grateful, their entire existence is only because of the behavior of Avram Avinu. So Amon and Moab, the descendants of Lot, should have said, we owe the Jewish people in perpetuity forever and ever. What can we give you? What can we get you? How can we take care of you? And the fact that they didn't is an act of of kafia of kafuitov. They were ungrateful. Ungrateful. Being ungrateful is a fatal character flaw. Being ungrateful is among the worst character flaws you can have, says the Medrash Tanchum and Shemos. If you're ungrateful to people, you will end up being ungrateful to God. If you can't recognize and say thank you for the good that people do, then ultimately you will not recognize and say thank you for the good and the graciousness that God does. And therefore it's a fatal character flaw. They practice a lack of gratitude. They were unwilling to offer and be hospitable to us. And that's why that was the first reason that was offered. It's not that it's less egregious, it is equal or more egregious. That lack of hospitality, that lack of gratitude is what metastasizes, it's what grows into the other negative qualities that ends up being so damaging as well. And this is also reflected by the Kotzker Rebbe. The great Kotzker Rebbe, the wonderful Musefer, I've been telling you about Emes Emuna. the Heiliger Kotzker says, sorry, not the Kotzker, this is also described by Reb Steinman. Reb Steinman says the following, he says, And he quotes the Ramban. Listen to the Ramban. Says the Ramban, these are descendants of Lot. Avram went to war, went to battle, risked it all in order to save them. And they should have been filled with gratitude. So wonders... Wonders the Heiliger of Aaron Lebstein Menzatzal in the Sefer Yelas Hashachar. He wonders, Hakaras Hatov. What do you mean? They can't marry because they lacked Hakaras Hatov. Where does it say that non Jews are obligated in Hakaras Hatov? We have what we call the Shevim Mitzvah Bene Noach. We have the seven Noachide laws. We have very clearly delineated seven laws that apply to non Jews. And there is not Hakaras Hatov among them. So, how could Hakaras Hatov, the obligation to be grateful, be so strong that the ingratitude caused us to not allow them to marry, where in the Torah does it say that non-Jews, B'nai Noach, are Muzar, they're obligated in Hakar Satov and gratitude? So listen to what Shteyman writes. He says, Hakar Satov lo mischaiva mitzara halacha. Hakar Satov hu echad beiz b'tzoros adam, mishachas lozos ein lo tavnes tzoros adam klal. Hakar Satov is not a mitzvah. Hakar Satov is not an obligation that non-Jews have. Hakar Satov is part are the building blocks and the definition of what it means to be a person. To be a human being is to be grateful. And if you are ungrateful, if you can't recognize the good that someone has done, it's not that you have omitted or violated a mitzvah, it's that you are failing to be a person. And that's what Chazal say in Avodah Tovahaya. What was the um, taina 
what was the indictment against Adam that he ate from the Eitz Because he was ungrateful. The lack of gratitude. God put him in the Garden of Eden. He said, eat to your heart's content, have whatever you want. Hit the shmor called the, Eitzah, the Gan Eden. However, one thing don't touch. And when he did, he violated the whole purpose he was created. He was ungrateful. When you are ungrateful, you're not even a Ben Adam. When you are ungrateful, you violate your very existence as a person, identity as a person. And for that, and for that, Adam was expelled. So similarly here, says Rav Steinman, you see that B'nai Noach, non-Jews, are not obligated as a mitzvah. There are seven, not eight Noachide laws. Yet, it's part of the building block, the cornerstone, the fabric of what it means to be a person is the responsibility and the obligation to express gratitude, to express gratitude. Perach of Dalad Pasuk Tezayin. Let's skip that. We don't have enough time. I want to get to a few more things. You know what? Let's do it. Perach of Dalad Pasuk Tezayin. Chapter 24, verse 16. Torah tells us, moving right along, divorce and remarriage, kidnapping, saras and slander. Wow, so many mitzvahs. Kisete is chock filled with a million mitzvahs. Slight exaggeration, but lots and lots of mitzvahs. So, Perak Chaf, Dalad Perak Tas, Pasik Tazayim. Lo yumsu avos abanam abanam lo yumsu alavos, ish becheto yumaso. Individual responsibility. The Torah tells us fathers should not be put to death because of children. Children should not be put to death because of parents. A person is put to death for their own sin. Back to the Rav Salavechik Chumash. Rav Salavechik Chumash, he says the following. Says the following. In Pirkei Avos, we're told that at the end of our lives, we'll be required to give din v'cheshbon, an accounting and a reckoning for our days and years in this world. Din involves individual judgment for what we accomplished and how much we failed to accomplish. Each man shall be put to death for his own transgression. Each person for their own. Ish becheto yumas. That's din. What is cheshbon? Cheshbon is for one's progeny as well. Offspring can be a great asset for the departed soul, or alternatively, a great liability. The Gemara in Sukkah, Daf Vav, we learn of the priestly family of Bilga, whose rights and privileges in the Beis Amitish were curtailed because of the behavior of one daughter who rejected Judaism and married a Greek soldier. So the family of Bilga, this esteemed prominent family of Kohanim, we learn, lost their rights and privileges because one of their children married a Greek soldier. The Gemara Rosh Hashanah Lamed Bey states on the day of the Rosh Hashanah, the books of living, the books of the dead are open before Hashem. Sifra Echayim and Sifra Mesim. It's usually interpreted to mean that on this day, Hashem judges who will live and who will die. Those who will live out the year are inscribed in the book of the living, and those who will not are inscribed in the book of the dead. But there is, however, another possible interpretation, says Rav Soloveitchik. The books of the living and of the dead represent judgment for both the living and the dead. All of mankind are judged on this day. The book of living represents the judgment for those who are alive, and the book of the dead represents a recurring verdict pronounced upon those who have already died. So it means the book of the living and the book of the dead is not about whether you will be inscribed in the book of life or death, but it means that even those who are not here, they are examined once again. Why could they be examined? They're in the world to come. They're in the Olama Emes. They're not, no longer in a world of free will and of choice. For what are they being examined? Says the Rav. The reason for continuing judgment of those who are no longer alive is that the consequences of a person's actions cannot always be immediately determined. For example, one may have raised a child without a proper religious education. As a result, the child will later turn his back on Judaism, which will in turn result in the assimilation of his own children and grandchildren. The dead are judged on every Rosh Hashanah for actions whose consequences were not realized until that very year. Wow! What a powerful insight. What a, what a challenging insight. It means that 
if we make poor choices in this world and they leave a poor impression and influence on others, we are responsible for that. Not only while we're alive, we carry that with us into the world to come. And that's an enormous onus, an enormous responsibility on us, our children, our progeny, the future, to be able to inspire. So Salvech is explaining that this Pasuk, children don't die for parents, parents don't die for children. On the one hand, it's true in terms of the specific consequences, the law. However, in terms of our identity, in terms of the impact that we leave, it remains very much that the dead are still judged for the choice, the inspiration, or the lack thereof they left on their next generations. Perch of Dalit Pasuk Yud Zayin, very next Pasuk. Losata Mishpat Geri Yasom, Velosachbo Beger Almana. Don't pervert the judgment of the Ger or the Yasom. Of the Ger or the Yasom. Who are the Ger, the convert, or the orphan? So it's a beautiful, uh, the Balaturim writes, Ger Yasom, Velo Amar Ger Viyasom. The Torah doesn't say here, don't pervert justice, judgment for the convert. Or, or the convert and the orphan, it says Ger Yasom. Loma Lachad, this teaches us Ger Shnes Geyer, Kekatan Shenolad Dami. It's Gemar Yavamas Davchav Beis. Balaturim quotes Gemar Yavamas Davchav Beis that we know that a convert, a Ger Shnes Geyer, somebody who converts, is born again. It means technically speaking, biblically speaking, the convert can marry their own sister. The convert's no longer related to their parents. Where do we know that principle from? Gershon is Gair Kekotan Shinola Dami. So the Chsam Sofer in his Chedushim and Avodah Zara, Daf Samach Dalad says, Yagati Harbe Vilomatsasim in Allah Rabbana, the Gershon is Gair Kekotan Shinola Dami. Where do we find the source for this? Chazal, our rabbis, took it for granted that a convert is as if born again and has no relationships to any of the previous people to whom he was biologically related. And therefore, Mutter Bachos Ubito Vimo Vitzarchin Gadol says the Chsam Sofer, I don't know where it comes from. Perhaps it comes from this Balaturim. This Balaturim is the or why? It doesn't say Ger V'yasom, it says Ger Yasom. By definition, by becoming a Ger, by definition, when you convert, you're an orphan. You're no longer related. You're born again, you're born anew, so that you're no longer biologically related to the people who came before, and that's why you are Ke'ilu, born again. So a beautiful insight, I forgot where. Why do we say Ger Shinesgayer Ke'katan Shinola Dami? We should say, Goyshin is Gayer. A non Jew who converted is as if born again. A non Jew who converted as if gets a fresh start. Why do we say Gershin is Gayer? And the answer is because every individual who was destined to convert was already present at Harsinai. It was already determined at Harsinai that they were going to convert. And therefore, it's Gershin is Gayer, the convert who converted. They were already in the trajectory. It was already determined. Their soul was already at Sinai. And now they just have to go through the technical part to continue to transform their soul. So Ger, Shiniz The convert who completed the conversion as opposed to the non-Jew who converted. Perach HaFei Pasuk Yud Gimel. Last insight, arguably the most important for today that I want to share with you. A very powerful, very important, very very contemporary insight. Torah tells us towards the end of our parsha, Perach HaFei chapter 25, Pasuk Yud Gimel, verse 13, Lo yelacha bekischa evin vo'aven, gedola uketana. Don't have in your pouch a weight and a weight, a large one and a small one. We know that in antiquity, before they had scales, digital scales, and before they had cash registers, the way that you would weigh how much of a particular uh, ingredient or material or good that you were selling, you'd weigh it on a scale, and based on the weight, you determine the price. So Torah says, be honest with those weights and measures. Don't have multiple measures, a large one and a small one, but rather, 
Have an honest and a perfect measure. If you're dishonest in business, you are a to'eva. People like to throw around the word, the word to'eva. We describe certain behavior, a certain orientation as to'eva. It is an abomination. But you know what else is an abomination? Being dishonest. Reporting something as a business expense when it wasn't. Being dishonest on your taxes. Being ruthless in your marketing and advertising. Being dishonest, that's also considered a to'eva. The Torah here tells us that being dishonest in business is a to'eva. Being dishonest in business is an abomination. Interestingly, the Torah here um, says, Rashi, Evan ve Evan Mishkalos, Gedola Ketana, Gedola Shemacheshes is Ketana, Shleya Nota Begedola Machzeh Beketana. Torah is telling us to be very, very careful when it comes to our weights and measures. If we steal, not only have we violated Ben Adam La, not only have we violated Ben Adam La Chavero, when you steal, you've not only violated between man and man, but we're violating between us and God as well. And that's the Nitziv suggestion in Ha'eim Agdavar, the Nitziv suggests, we mentioned this last year as well, that the reason we have these laws of honest weights and measures right next to the war of the law of Amalek is because if Rashi says, it's a, it's a Rashi, Rashi says the juxtaposition of these two mitzvahs is if you're dishonest in weights and measures, then be concerned of the provocation by the enemy. Attacked by people such as Amalek are a punishment for being dishonest with weights and measures. Why is there a punishment? Where does this come from? So the Tziv says very beautifully. He asks a series of questions, but he gives the following answer. He says, Hashem sends Amalek, before Amalek's attack, Ben Israel complained about the lack of drinking. He says, is Hashem with us or not? So Amalek come because we didn't bring Hashem in our midst. So, so the Nitziv says that when do we merit divine providence? When we act honestly. If you act dishonestly, you've knocked God out of the equation. If we are dishonest, then Hashem is not there. If we really believe Hashem provides for us, we'd never cheat steal, we'd never cut corners, we'd never bend the rules. If we believe we have what's coming to us is coming from Hashem, we would be honest all along, we'd never take a shortcut. We'd never take a shortcut. It is absolutely an abomination to Hashem. It's interesting, the Pasuk says, Ki Hashem it's a funny language, clumsy. It's an abomination of Hashem. All who do this, all who act corruptly. Why this? Kolosa Ela, Kolosa Avel. So the Menachem Metzion Zaks, the Helig Menachem Tzion, you know I quote him often, I love Moser Rav in Chicago, the son of Lord of Tipesach Frank, the Menachem Tzion. So the Menachem Tzion says, what does it mean, Kisovas Hashem? You know what's an abomination to God? You know what is the biggest abomination to God? Kolosa Ela, when you keep all of Torah, and then kolosa avel, and then you cheat in business. When you shuckle in shul, and when you have a long shmona esrei, and when you have your name and lights for all the tzedakah and chesed that you do, and then you're dishonest in business. Kolosa ele, you keep all of Torah, and yet kolosa avel, and yet you cheat in business. That is the to'eva to Hashem. Hashem says that's the abomination. If you can't be honest and straight in business, don't pretend that you love me. Because if you love me, you realize that I'll take care of you. If you love me, you realize that you don't need to cut corners or cheat. Cheating and cutting corners and stealing is not only a violation of Adam Lachavero, but is an act of kfira. You show that you don't really have faith in Hashem. If you really had faith in Hashem, you'd never cut corners, you'd never cheat, you'd never steal, you would never bend the rules. There's a beautiful uh, insight of the Kedushas Levi, Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, and we'll end with, uh, with this insight today. And Levi Yitzchak is trying to resolve a stira between two Gemaras. On the one hand, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin of Zion, on the one hand, the Gemara says, I'm sorry, on the one hand, the Gemara says in Shabbos, that we know that when we die, we come upstairs and we're greeted by our Maker. He has a series of questions he asks us. And one of them is, Nasata Nasata Be'amuna. Did we do our business dealings honestly? And then, Achar Kach Kavate Itim. 
Then the then will be asked upstairs, Kavata Itam La Torah, did you set aside time for Torah study? So what's the order of the questions? First we're asked if we dealt honestly in business, and then we're asked, Kavata Itam, did we set aside time for Torah study? But then the Gemara Sanhedrin says, Omar Hamnuna, that we are judged for whether we learn Torah or not. So which is it? Are we first asked about honest business dealings? Or are we first asked about our commitment to learning Torah? So listen to what the Kedushas Levi, the Heilagar of Levi Yitzchik of Berdichev says something so beautiful. Nira Levar, the Sheila Achasi, really the very same question. Were you honest in business and did you learn Torah? If you do business dealings honestly, then clearly you've learned Torah. Because if you're doing business, how do you have time to learn? You have to bring in an income, make a livelihood, provide for your family, give to the community, then how do you have time to learn? So Shlomo HaMelech said, we come to know Hashem in all of our dealings. Because when you go out to the marketplace and you're tempted to cheat in business, but you remember, Evan Shlema, no, 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 I have to have a complete and I have to have whole weights and measures. You're tempted to be lewd and licentious and you remember, that you have to be modest and humble. You're tempted to be ruthless, and you remember, midvar sheker tirchak, you cannot tell a lie. When you go out into business, in the business world, and you are employing and engaging all the lessons of Torah all day long, that is the fulfillment of kavata itim la Torah. You are learning Torah when you are living Torah. And therefore says, Rav Levi Yitzhak, it's not a stira, it's not a contradiction. Which are you asked first? Are you first asked, did you do your business dealings honestly? And then did you learn Torah? Or are we first asked, did you learn Torah? It's a Zelbazach. It's really the very same question. It's really the very same question. Did we live Torah? Will we learn Torah through our living of Torah? Living Torah through our learning of Torah. Don't do anything inconsistent with Torah. We're living Torah. Living Torah is learning Torah. That is the answer of the Kedusha Slavi. So we have a responsibility to be honest in our business dealings. It's a toeva. If we keep Torah and mitzvahs and then osa avel and then we cheat and we cut corners, it's a toeva. It is an abomination to Hashem. We should all be honest and straight and bring great merit. The ORB, our local Hashgacha, several years ago, decided not only to test the ingredients in each of our stores, but we calibrate the scales. We want to make sure whatever people are being charged, however many ounces or pounds they claim it to be, that those scales are honest. Because part of kashras is yashras. You have to keep not only kosher, you have to be yosher. You have to be honest and straight. Otherwise, it is a toeva. It is an abomination. Again, if you'd like to sponsor a future shear, go on brsonline.org slash sponsor. If you'd like to get the notes of today's shear, and you want to be able to bring it to your Shabbos table and share these Divrei Torah, simply subscribe to the newsletter, RabbiEphraimGoldberg.org, RabbiEphraimGoldberg.org. Sign up to get that newsletter, and in it you will have the beautiful Parsha PDF for your table. Until next time, tomorrow, 10 minutes of meaning, 8.15, Living with the Moon at 8.45, and 9 p.m. tomorrow night, Wednesday night, we go behind the bima with the great Hall of Fame, man of faith who loves God, Mariano Rivera, the great Mo, the Sandman, 9 p.m. Wednesday night, Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy.
and stay holy.